From Washington, D.C., this is the Korean American Perspectives, a new podcast presented to you by the Council of Korean Americans. Welcome to the Korean American Perspectives podcast, where we explore the triumphs and challenges of the Korean American experience and examine different sides of complex issues that shape our community. We thank you for tuning in and hope you enjoy this episode. From the Council of Korean Americans in Washington, D.C., this is Abraham Kim with the Korean American Perspectives podcast. Very few people could say that they are a neurosurgeon. It would require years of hard work, brutal training, and yes, some brains to attain the specialized medical field. If you ask some neurosurgeons why they chose the field, some would say it is because some fascination with the mysteries of the brain or the technical and intellectual challenges working on the nervous system. However, for our guest today, Dr. Key Park entered neurosurgery because he thought the chief neurosurgeon during his residency drove a cool car. In fact, Key originally did not even want to become a physician, although his father, who was a doctor, hoped that he would join the medical profession. It was a bumpy life journey. He dropped out of medical school, then he dropped out of his PhD program, only to go back to medical school. Despite all this, Key ultimately found his calling and joy in caring for the sick and the ill. This calling only deepened and broadened as he got older. He later gave up a comfortable and cushy life as a successful neurosurgeon driving, yes, a cool car. His faith in God and the support of his loving family turned his life toward another direction training doctors in neurosurgery overseas in developing countries. This took him and his family to Ethiopia, Cambodia, and then back to Boston to study and teach public health at Harvard University as a Paul Farmer Global Surgery Scholar at Harvard Medical School. Ultimately, his journey in medicine and public health took him to North Korea. Today, he spends a significant portion of his time on humanitarian work trying to save lives and help North Korea's deteriorating medical system and trauma care. Each year over the last 10 plus years, his travel to North Korea to help train medical professionals and do surgery as a humanitarian advocate. Few people have the intimate knowledge and inside view of North Korea's medical system as Dr. Ki Park. Join with me in this amazing interview of a brilliant Korean American doctor as we trace Key Park's tumultuous life journey full of twists and turns along the way to ultimately find his life calling as a global public health advocate and as a surgeon and a teacher doing surgery in the operating rooms in Pyongyang. Without further delay, here's Dr. Key Park. Welcome, Key Park, uh, to the Korean American Perspective. It's, it's so great to have you with us here today. Thank you, Abe. Uh, Key, let's start off with your immigration experience. I understand you were born in Korea and not here in the United States. Right, right. So I was born in Daejeon. Uh, so I'll give you my age. <laughs> I was born in 1963. And so uh, my, my dad was in the Korean military as a medical doctor. 
and I, I grew up in a, a, a medical hospital, uh, army hospital, uh, where he worked. And then he, he, he got out of the military and then um, opened up a, a practice in Seoul. And when I was 10 years old in 1973, at that time, uh, the U.S. was experiencing a shortage of, of medical doctors. And so they relaxed some of the immigration rules. So that, that, that allowed uh, doctors like my dad, a lot of his classmates to apply for um, uh, immigration to U.S. And uh, that's when we all came over here, 1973, 1974. My dad had to do his residency over again. Uh, he did it in family medicine. Um, and then, yeah, we settled in New Jersey. It was hard. Um, I was 10 years old, uh, didn't speak the language. This certainly didn't look like an American at that time, whatever that meant. <laughs> um, yeah, in the sense of not being part of, I think that was hard. Uh, at that age, it's important to have friends. And I, and I was taken away from my, my good friends from South Korea and had to make new friends. And it wasn't easy adjusting to, the, uh, uh, to, to living in the U.S. and in New Jersey at that time. Uh, since you came from a medical family, did you, were there expectations that you would be a doctor as well someday? Uh, were you kind of, was your father putting these kinds of expectations on you? Well, so not explicitly, right? It wasn't like he looked at me in the eye and said, Key, you should be a doctor or, or, or you know, my, my mom, but there was an expectation and they, you could tell they hoped me to follow because I was the oldest son, uh, the medical path. And I really resented that. Um, I wanted to, you know, figure out what I want, what I like, want to do with my life. Uh, but I was a dutiful son and I followed through and then, and, you know, ended up going to medical school. I, I will tell you though, I, I, I did rebel. <laughs> You know, after two years of med school, I said, you know what, I want to do something totally different. Not totally different, but uh, something different. I, uh, so I, I actually ended up at uh, Harvard uh, Graduate School. What were you studying at Harvard? Uh, neuropharmacology. Uh, for some, whatever reason, I wanted to you know, be a research scientist, and I failed miserably at doing that. And um, I was actually, uh, I dropped out, I, I, you, know, you know, with some encouragement from 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 the school, I was kicked out. I did, I, you know, I wasn't doing the work. So hmm. they said, you know, Key, do you, you know, we can either kick you out or you can withdraw. So I, I withdrew. But the irony in that is, you know, that was in what, 1985? Uh, now, you know, 2016, 17, I become faculty at the same institution. So, <laughs> you know, I, uh, you know it, it, anything's possible. Uh, just listening to you, I mean, going from medicine to neuropharmacology, I mean, from the untrained eye, uh, what do I know? I'm a social scientist, but it doesn't seem like a large leap, but there must have been a, a, a big gap there. And, and there was something that you wanted to, you didn't like and you rebelled against that. Yeah. I was, and and, and to, to, to use a cliche, I was a rebel without a clue. You know, I had no idea what I wanted to do. I had friends who went, you know, went to Wall Street at that time. Massive numbers were going into Wall Street. Um, but me, I didn't really have the you know, fancy that, but I wanted to maybe come up with some you know, discovery or, or, you know, for, for certain diseases. Um, I don't, I, I didn't really, you know, it, make, it, make, it make it sound like I had a, a, a plan, a grand plan or strategy. I didn't. It was, uh, I think, a, a looking back, an, an act of defiance and saying to my parents, Listen, I'm not going to do what you expect me to do. I'm going to do something else. 
But I ended up, you know, going back into med school. And I really like being a actually I, I, I'm actually good at it I, I love working with people I love being able to heal someone using what I know and what my you know using my hands I think it's a, it's an incredible field and you went back to medicine and you became a neurosurgeon uh, tell me that journey how did you pick that field as your specialty yeah so I do have a story about this you know so now I'm what 20 three years old, 24 or five years old, um, super impressionable, trying to figure out how to become successful in the American society, um, having lived in the U.S. for, what, 10, 15 years. So uh, I'm, in, I'm in med school now. And during my surgical residency and surgical tr- uh, rotation as a student, uh, a, we had to call the neurosurgeon in to do a, uh, evaluate a head injury patient who ended up going into surgery. And I had never met a neurosurgeon before, but this guy walks in, he, you know, he had a beautiful sports car. Uh, and, and then everybody's like, there he is, you know, like hush, hush. And he's coming, you know, he just waltzes into the operating room. And, and I, I just love that. I said, this guy is a neurosurgeon and he just commands respect. And, and he obviously has a beautiful car. And I said, I want to be a neurosurgeon. It was that simple. It wasn't anything like, you know, uh, anything more loftier than the fact that it seemed like the, the, the right way to get to a, a successful place in, in the United States. You went to Temple University Hospital for your residency and you chose to become a neurosurgeon. Was there any regrets that you went down that path because how you ultimately selected your well, specialty? Well, so the residency was brutal. I don't know if it is the same way now, but in this, in the, the, during that era, I mean, you know, very abusive training program. Every third night on call, um, just getting belittled publicly, you know, in front of others, uh, always in fear of you know being fired. I mean, it's just a horrible uh, training situation. But somehow I weathered through that, uh, and I finished, and I went and ended up um, uh, in a a community-based practice uh, uh, in the suburbs, you know, in, the, in, the, in, in uh, Missouri, south of St. Louis. Uh, and that's all, that was my uh, goal. I, I didn't want to do academics. Uh, I wanted to go to a nice place, uh, uh, settle down, have a start a family and be a community a neurosurgeon. That's exactly, you know, what I did. I got married uh, and then uh, we moved to a, a Missouri. This was uh, 1995. And how many years did you practice uh, neurosurgery in this Missouri town? 12 years. And then you had a kind of a, I guess a midlife, uh, not a crisis, but a midlife reassessment. Uh, and you started looking at public health as a, as an area of interest. Yeah. Yeah. This here. is a good point. This is good. Um, so I, I wouldn't say it was midlife because I wasn't that old. <laughs> was, this was what, nine, like year 2000. I was like 37 at the time, I guess. Um, but I had been working as a community neurosurgeon for about seven years. I uh, had, had two little girls by this point. We, you know, we bought a nice house and I had my sports car. I got to tell you, you know, and, 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 you know, having acquired all the things that I thought uh, would ultimately land me in a place where I could say to myself, Key, you've arrived, you know, this is where you're supposed to be and you should be happy. But that's not how I felt. Um, it's almost like you, you know, you climb a mountain 
and then there's just sort of a, a pot of something, you know, a treasure at the top of the, uh, the, the apex of the mountain. So you get to the summit and then you realize it's, it's, it's just the summit. And, and, and that's how I felt. Uh, uh, and I had everything that I could possibly, I, I could have possibly wanted. And it, it wasn't giving me getting what I thought I, I really wanted, which was an inner sense of satisfaction. It wasn't there. And so my wife and I um, were both Christians and uh, uh, we, we talked about this uh, on a regular basis to say, you know, we, this is good. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be of service in this community, but there was a sense of being unfulfilled. And then uh, one, one, you know, we, we were, um, uh, read a verse out of the Bible one, one time and it, it was the, uh, out of Luke. And it says, to those much has been given, much is expected. Somehow that verse really just drove home uh, to me and my wife and saying, you know, we've been given so much. And it's not just because keep getting more and uh, uh, a bigger house, another car. That's not really what was expected of us. It was something else. And uh, we, at that moment, uh, started to look uh, at how we could be of service to others. I was, uh, uh, and so uh, I got involved with short-term medical missions, gradually changed into a uh, uh, teaching neurosurgery uh, in developing countries. And then uh, at some point, I just said, I want to do this full time. And I had the full backing of my wife. Uh, it was a major decision, right? So it's a huge decision. Um, but uh, I've never regretted it. So you moved out of Missouri and you did you, I know you went to Ethiopia and then to Cambodia as well. Did you move to these locations? Right. So we tried. So Ethiopia was one of my first uh, assignments, if you will, uh, teaching at a, uh, uh, at a first neurosurgical training program in the country. Um, and so they had 90 million Ethiopians with three neurosurgeons and they were all in Addis Ababa. And this was in 2008, 2000, yeah, 2008. So uh, we tried to go over there with my wife and children. Uh, at one point, my second daughter got sick. She had to be air evac out to Nairobi. And uh, my wife just got spooked about the whole living in Africa stuff and said, we, we, I don't want to move there. And I, I, I have to support her decision uh, with that. So we ended up uh, moving back to New Jersey um, to be close to it with my parents. And then I traveled back and forth to Ethiopia uh, on a regular basis. And so, uh, uh, and I became the director of spine surgery at this uh, one hospital. And um, uh, now Ethiopia has 45 neurosurgeons. I mean, it's an incredible success story. And then there was an, an opportunity to, uh, to go to Cambodia uh, because now Cambodia had just started their own residency program. Uh, and then I took, I said, honey, honey, do you want to, you know, just see what it's like in Cambodia? And so we went over there together and, uh, you know, she just said, I can, I can see us moving over here as a family. So we went ahead and um, uh, at that time we had three daughters and we moved there uh, as a family. And um, I taught neurosurgery at a government hospital. Uh, and then my wife taught English at a, at a, at a Christian international school. And we lived there for three years. How was that transition for your, especially for your kids? Were they supportive? Uh, how did they, how did they take all this moving around? Oh, you know, we underestimated the impact it would have on our children. So our youngest was three. It didn't really make a difference. Our oldest, I think was, uh, she was 15. And then and our, and our middle daughter, she was, I think, 12 or something like that. And, 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 our middle daughter was pissed. <laughs> I mean, she was pissed. Uh, and we took her anyway. And um, 
And I, to this day, I think she has some degree of resentment uh, that we you know, uh, took her uh, out of her network of friends and then moved her to a, a place so far away. But she's okay now. And then, but it was tough. It was tough, uh, the adjustment. Um, but now the, the, the girls look back and they really have fond memories. Um, you know, they, 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 my older two daughters got tattoos in, 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 in Khmer, which is the Cambodian language, you know, without telling us, of course. <laughs> you know, uh, so, yeah, it, 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 it's been good. It's been a, a really, uh, uh, it, it was a challenge as a family. Uh, we met it, and then we grew in the process. So uh, what do you think is one of the uh, lasting legacies of having to move those locations on your family? Yeah, I mean, I would like to tell you that we, you know, through grit and faith that somehow we, we were an amazing team. That's not really what happened. I mean, we, there were a lot of hardships, especially at the, at the ages that the girls were at. But having said that, our daughters, they have seen things that I think most people living in the U.S. may, may not uh, realize, you know, how other people live, especially in, in, in developing countries. So, so for instance, my oldest daughter, uh, she, she's interested, now she studies international relations. And, and, and I don't think that's an accident because she, she really wants to get into development issues and, you know, uh, disparities, those kinds of issues. And my second daughter is, is interested in social work, trying to help people who have fallen through the cracks, if you will. So, so I mean, I think that it does influence them and uh, in, in, in how they want to be of service in the future. So, and, and so now actually does bring us closer together because our values, because I, I, I do, you know, basically humanitarian work and, 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 and try to serve the, the, the most marginalized population. So we can all relate at that level. It must make you feel proud in a certain sense of the, the pathway that your, your children chose as a result of their experience. Absolutely. I mean, you know, one of the values that I try to teach my, you know, our children is, is try to serve others. You know, I think it was, um, Mother Teresa is that the best way to find yourself is to lose yourself in the service of others. And, and that's what happened with me. And I'm hoping that's what will happen with them. And they're actually in the process of, you know, finding themselves, which is uh, amazing to watch. So if, if uh, medical school wasn't not enough schooling, you decided to come back to school and you did your MPH, a master's of public health at, at Harvard. Um, uh, why did you choose to come back to school? No, that's a great question. Um, I loved what I was doing on the ground, uh, which was working with um, residents and, and local surgeons, Ethiopian, and then after that, Cambodian surgeons and, uh, and, 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 and trainees, and seeing the light you know, bulb come on in their eyes and goes, hey, I just did this operation. You know, I was like, yes, you did. <laughs> uh, and I was able to transfer that kind of skill and, 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 and impart certain amount of confidence and sense of independence. And I will never, I mean, that, that's one of the joys uh, and, and personal uh, and, and professional rewards I will, uh, I will always have with me. Uh, but if my goal is to try to improve the lives of people in developing countries, and, and specifically uh, in, in being able to uh, access surgical care, in my case, neurosurgical care, the way I was going about it, which was trying to train as many surgeons as I could, isn't gonna do it. That's I came to that light bulb went on uh, in Cambodia. The problem is these surgeons, uh, is, I can train a hundred or even two hundred of them. 
when they get out, they don't have a place to go. They don't have a place to practice. There's no CAT scanner. There's no operating rooms, anesthesiologists, nurses. They don't have a salary you know, uh, that, that's going to incentivize them to serve the general public. So, so the problem is a system-level problem. The health systems are so uh, uh, under-supported uh, and, and poorly built and fragile. And then you start to realize that uh, we question whose responsibility is to provide health security for the, for the people. It's the government. It it's, it's always comes down to politics for me and, and when it comes to health. And I said, if I want to really make a difference, I, 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 I need to work in the public health space and try to influence policymakers. And so, um, and at this time at Harvard Medical School, there was a group of, uh, of, of, of academics that had come together and developed the program in, in global surgery. And they, they, they did some really uh, uh, impressive work in, 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 in generating evidence in, in the disparities of surgical care. And so I came back to Boston to do a fellowship with these, uh, these people. And, and, and now I'm faculty in this program. And uh, at their suggestion, I, I went ahead and got an MPH to, uh, uh, to speak the language of public health. And, uh, Is this when you started to get interested in North Korea? Uh, I know you served as the director of North Korea program for the Korean American Medical Association. Right, North Korea. So no, the, the answer is uh, I was interested in North Korea uh, in, the, in the 2000s, you know, 12, 13 years ago when I was looking to serve, you know, uh, and then I saw North Korea as a country where I could be uniquely use, uh, useful. Um, uh, I speak the language. Uh, uh, I, I have got the training. Uh, and then I have some resources I can devote to it. So in 2007, uh, myself and, and, and a number of other Korean-American neurosurgeons um, who were you know, thinking the same way I was, which was, hey, you know, we're really blessed. How can we give back? we decided to approach uh, uh, the North Korean neurosurgeons. And so we had an, a meeting that was arranged in New York with the North Korean uh, diplomats. Uh, they, they work at the permanent mission to the UN. And so we had lunch with them. And this was in uh, July of 2007. The gentleman I had lunch with, uh, his name is Park Sung-il. Um, and he was a counselor at that time. And uh, we said, we would love to work with North Korean neurosurgeons and try to you know, work together alongside with them. They said, that'd be great. Uh, can you send us an official invitation to the North Korean uh, neurosurgeons? Uh, one of the things we did was as, a, as an act of goodwill, we wanted to invite the neurosurgeons from North Korea to US. So we sent an invitation. Um, and then September, two months later, I get a phone call from uh, this guy, uh, Counselor Pak. Uh, by the way, now he's back in, you know, he went back to Pyongyang, now he's back in the US at the same mission, uh, now is the ambassador in charge of all U.S. affairs. So, uh, so uh, uh, now Ambassador Pak says, calls me up, September 2007, says, Dr. Park, would you like to go to Pyongyang? Of course, I jumped at the chance. So I was, uh, that was my first trip into North Korea. Did you Korea, go by yourself? September Did of you go by yourself? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, <laughs> so, you know, my parents are against it. My mom especially says, don't go. And um, but I did, and um, uh, that was my first trip. And then April of the following year, in 2008, we did actually successfully invite three North Koreans to come to U.S. And then they came to the, uh, the neurosurgical annual meeting in Chicago, and 
know, we just couldn't tell anyone about it because that, that, that was the condition for the visas by the State Department. It, it was, uh, yeah, 2007, uh, that's, that was during the Nomoyun period, right? So relations between North and South Korea were at a, at a good period in terms of there was a lot of engagement and interaction between North and South Korea. Share with us, I mean, that, that first trip to um, North Korea, I mean, what, what was it like and how were you treated? And uh, I imagine it was a very surreal experience. For yeah, you. so the occasion for the invitation was the uh, Pyongyang International Medical Conference. Um, it was supposed to be in May, but it was postponed to September because of the floods. And as you mentioned, um, at that time, that was a month before Nomyeon actually went to Pyongyang. And there were 30 people from South Korea who attended this conference. And EPS came as part of the delegation in the entire, you know, there was a, 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 a video team from KBS. Um, it was really interesting. Uh, that was my first trip to Pyongyang. The South Koreans were there, the North Koreans are there, you know, you know so there was a number of uh, U.S. and uh, Korean Americans there. Really felt good. You know, there was this sense of solidarity, especially within the medical community. And then a month later, Romyeon went, but then there was the elections with uh, Im Young-bak becoming the president, and then he stopped everything. Mm. And uh, I actually went back to Pyongyang the year later in May for the following year's annual Pyongyang Medical Conference and no one from South Korea had come. So I asked the North Koreans, I said, where are the South Koreans? They said, well, we invited them, but no one came. Then I, you know, I, I actually went to South Korea right after that visit. And I said, hey, you know, they said they invited you, why didn't you go? And they said, well, no, we never received the invitation. So I, you don't know what happened, <laughs> okay? <laughs> and, but I thought this was gonna be a temporary uh, situation where North and South Korea were no longer engaging. But we're now, this was in 2008, and we're at, uh, now we're 2020, uh, 12 years later. And, 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 and there's still no large-scale South Korea, North Korea uh, exchanges. Um, I'm hoping that it will change, though. Yeah. Yeah. So you've actually been going to North Korea on a regular basis since the, those first trips uh, back in uh, 0708. Tell us about the work you've been doing with the North Koreans and, and describe the condition of the North Korean medical system, uh, your impressions. So the, our mission is to, to work alongside North Korean doctors. Now I'm happy, I have to be in, happen to be a neurosurgeon, so I work with the neurosurgeons, but we've had radiologists, ophthalmologists, you know, plastic surgeons, and they get paired up with their own counterparts. So, our, our, you know, and we see patients together. We actually are, are given li medical licenses in North Korea to, to see patients and treat them uh, with North Korean uh, doctors. I'll give you um, a, a, a story about, uh, you know, the conditions in the OR. So, so, you know, when Dr. Park comes and they get the memo, listen, he's a Korean-American neurosurgeon. Uh, let's make sure that everything is cleaned up and we use best instruments and all that, you know, there's that, let's show our best side, right? Put our best foot forward. And that's not unique to North Korea, right? I mean, this is a, a very Asian type of mentality. And they give me paper gowns and, and, and paper hats. And I think they think that I prefer that because that's, that's what American, you know, they see on, you know, the, we use disposable everything, 
I actually prefer cloth gowns. <laughs> but anyway, uh, we would operate, uh, uh, and then they would put their, you know, the, 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 all the clean instruments in, 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 you know, for me to operate with. One time, I was given a scalpel to, to make the incision, and then it wouldn't cut. Uh, it was dull, so I looked at it carefully, and then the blade was rusted. So until then, I was given a fresh scalpel every time, but somehow the, the nurse who set the OR didn't get the memo or you know, didn't, didn't put a fresh scalpel in. And so they got sort of you know, caught with handing Dr. Park a, a, a rusty scalpel. And there was this tension in the OR you know, with the, the, my counterpart who's working across the table from me looking at the, the scrub nurse with these eyes like, what are you doing? You know, this is in, you're, you're embarrassing us. And there was this sense of you know, discomfort. And then I just, you know, try to break up the, um, the, the, the tension and said in Korean, but with a North Korean accent, said, Irosunida, you know, <laughs> you know that phrase, right? Irosunida. Yeah. This is a North Korean way of saying no problem. Mm. And I don't know if the, um, North, it was the way I said it or whatever, but they all started laughing. Mm. And, and then we got through the operation and it was no problem. And now they don't even give me fresh scalpel. They always give me dull scalpels now. <laughs> but that gives you an idea of te ekyo. They, 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 they try not to waste anything. Even something so, uh, you know, uh, minute as a, a, a surgical scalpel, which probably costs pennies. And they have more scalpel. I've seen them. They have a box of them. But they won't open it till they absolutely have to. Uh, uh, the, so that the other scalpel is unusable. And this is what Paul Farmer says, you know, the, the scared, uh, socialized for scarcity. And this is what the North Koreans are like. And, you know, I will tell you, my parents are the same way. They grew up during the Korean War. Uh, they know what hunger is like. You know, they, 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 my father uh, can't throw anything away. He has shoes from 30 years ago. I said, Dad, you know, are you going to wear this? <laughs> and he's like, you know, you never know. <laughs> And he'll wear it once in a while just to, you know, prove the point. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, we, it's not unique to North Koreans. This is, it, we, we have, I, I've seen this in my own family. Mm. Sounds like they're recycling everything and they're using, is, are there any dangers in terms of this kind of, um, I guess, practice of recycling medical equipment? So if they're re-sterilized, I think it's okay. There, I think it's not optimum. I think that it, some things should be thrown away, like some the catheters, and needles. You know, if they're hollow, how do you really clean out the inside of these things well? So, you know, there's some concerns. But if they're re-sterilized, I, hopefully uh, it, it, you know, it doesn't cause any uh, transmission of bacteria so, or something like that. What's the culture like in the medical colleagues there? What are similar and what is dissimilar from what you've seen in, say, the medical community in South Korea, for example, among colleagues? Yeah, great question. Uh, I'll, I'll just uh, throw out some random uh, observations. Number one, um, North Korean parents are super proud when their kids get into med school, just like South Korea. You know, I'll have, you know, North Korean people mention to me on a random, says, by the way, my son got into uh, Pyongyang Medical College, you know. I was like, oh, good for him, you know, good for her. So they're super proud. And you really do have to be at the top of your class to be able to get into med school. It's one of the most competitive um, fields to, to get into. Doctors in North Korea, I think, are solid middle-class people. Uh, if you, you, you want, you know, they're not super wealthy. 
uh, and they're not super, they're just solid middle class. They have um, uh, cell phones, for instance, right? Which uh, more and more. Uh, they still use uh, public transportation to get to and from work. Um, that, so they're not super wealthy, but they're, they're very well regarded, solid middle class. And then I'll tell you in the operating room, and I've operated in South Korea and also in North Korea. In South Korea, when a surgeon walks in, there's this uh, steep uh, power gradient. Um, you know, the, the, the nurses don't initiate conversations unless they have to. I mean, this is, you know, the surgeon is the, whatever he or she says is finished. I mean, it's, it's, and to a degree, I think that's not healthy because you need to be able to uh, uh, you know, confront things when it's not right. And that, 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 but you see that. But in North Korea, I think it may be the socialist influence, the nurse, and then the way they speak, the Chondemai system is not so um, uh, pronounced. You know, it's like they say, you know, the, the, so it's more of a, a flat. And, and, and the nurses and, and the chief surgeons, they're able to have a conversation uh, much more freely. And it's refreshing to see that. There's not some of, some of that, you know, dunchiba, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> With, <laughs> I don't see that as much. Um, they're, 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 they're just speak up, says, oh, this is how, you know, we don't have this, we have this. And, you know, they're not, yeah, there's so, so the, the power, the, 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 the gradient is much flatter. Um, so yeah, those are the uh, things that, uh, you know, some observations about doctors uh, in North Korea. How's their level of training? Uh, obviously, they don't have as wide access to the Western world or even the developed world. I'm, I'm, I'm wondering your assessment of their, compared to maybe South Korean or other Western trained surgeons, how are their skill sets? Um, so technically, they're excellent because, you know, if it's, if it's about how to take out a brain tumor from a very, very difficult location, uh, given the right instruments and equipment, they can do the operation as well as anyone else can. I've seen that myself. It's the fact that they don't have access to the latest uh, information. They have medical textbooks that they, have, that they can reference, and they have certain doctors that are able to go overseas and spend a year or two and then come back and they share their information. But there's a limited amount of medical knowledge because of that. So yeah, there's a that, that that's a little bit lacking. But having said that, some of uh, there are some doctors in in North Korea who have spent time overseas, and they get it, and then they try their best to try to um, uh, uh, share that information and then know how with their colleagues. So would they would go to places like China or Russia or European countries? Is that usually where they go for training? Yeah, so they go to China a lot. They have a, a pretty regular program. And the WHO uh, had a program where many of the doctors went to India, uh, all India uh, Institute of Medicine, which is a very good uh, institution. Some of them uh, have gone to Vietnam, to hospitals in Hanoi and, and Ho Chi Minh City. Uh, people have gone to France. Uh, uh, there's a colleague that went to a hospital in Berlin uh, in Germany. So yeah, they get to go to all these places. Uh, and Russia, of course, uh, uh, that's a big place for them to go. Not as much as in the past, but uh, they do, yeah. You're also doing some a major public health uh, initiative to help support um, North Korea's uh, overall uh, trauma infrastructure. Could you talk to us a little bit about that project that you're working on? Sure, so, so if, 
my work at Harvard Medical School is with the programming global surgery. And our, our vision is universal access to surgical care and work uh, mainly with research and policy engagement and advocacy. And, and so we work with WHO, for instance, uh, and, and helping their members uh, uh, scale up surgical care uh, nationally. And, and, and North Korea is one of the countries that signed on to this resolution from uh, WHO World Health Assembly uh, in Geneva uh, in 2015 saying that they're, they're, uh, they want to strengthen surgical care throughout the whole country. Well, that's, you can imagine it's a massive project and super expensive project, but I've maintained communications with the North Korean Ministry of Public Health and, and making sure that we can help them as, 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 um, as much as we're able. And we're able to um, get South Korea uh, to commit, uh, actually, this, this, this actually happened. Uh, so. In December of last year, the South Koreans agreed to give $5 million uh, through WHO as, as a pilot project in North Korea to, to improve their uh, surgical care in one province. Uh, pediatric surgical care uh, was the actual project. So that, that project is, is actually supposed to start in January, uh, but it's been delayed because of the COVID-19 situation, but it will start in July. Uh, and then we'll finish up at the end of 2021. And we're hoping now, uh, if we're able to get, uh, 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 you know, this is a complicated situation, uh, we have to get sanctions committee to approve massive uh, uh, shipments of medical equipment uh, to North Korea. But if we're able to show these processes uh, are working and then we get sufficient uh, North Korean co cooperation, which we're getting now, then the next step is to uh, move from the pilot project to a nationwide project uh, where you will need to get a lot more funding. But the North Koreans are also willing to put in 20%, up to 20% of a, uh, a nationwide surgical expansion project. So we're hoping that, uh, you know, we can get the, uh, you know, we're talking four or $500 million. <laughs> but it will be the largest uh, 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 cooperative health project uh, in North Korea. Um, and, and, and hopefully we'll get this through. So, Key, you also work on not only the humanitarian part of North Korea, but you also also explore geopolitics and, and, and the impact of sanctions. Can you talk a little bit about that? So North Korea, as you know, um, maybe, maybe people don't know, but they're subjected to the most complicated and restrictive set of uh, international sanctions in history. And there's a reason for that, right? It's because of North Korea's uh, nuclear weapons and ICBM development. And I get that. But the problem is every one of these sanctions have in the clause within the text that these sanctions are not intended to harm ordinary people of North Korea or hinder the humanitarian aid organizations from providing assistance. But the reality is that it's clear uh, uh, it is impacting the lives of ordinary people. Imagine in the U.S., uh, if our oil consumption is limited to 10% of what we were doing last year. So if you're allowed to only use one-tenth of the fuel that we were using, uh, how that impact your economy? Well, that's exactly what's happened to North Korea. They're un unable to import more than 10% of their previous year's petroleum uh, in imports. Just one example. So we did a, re uh, we did a research project uh, last summer, and we published this, uh, looking at what 
how many people could have died as a result of uh, the UN sanctions and the funding cuts to the UN's humanitarian agencies that work in North Korea. And, and, and UN publishes all this data, so we're able to um, calculate the, 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 the potential, no, the number of uh, deaths. And we came up with 4,000 uh, North Korean people. These are uh, uh, women and children, actually over 3,000 were children under five years old. These deaths could have been prevented if the sanctions were not in place and if we were able to fully fund the humanitarian programming, at least for the UN agencies. And then we take this information and then we uh, show the senders of the sanctions and saying, listen, you're not doing what you say you're going to do. You're not practicing what you're preaching and you need to change uh, things so that there's no collateral damage. We don't want ordinary people hurt as a result of these sanctions. And I think we've had some successes in, in that. Yeah, I think the sanctions question is, is, is such a, a convoluted and complicated one because in some ways, yes, there is the sanctions of the international community, but it's in response to you know, negative behavior by the North Korean government as well. And so I, I'm wondering, um, do you also talk to the North Korean government about, well, I know it's a sensitive issue, but just in terms of you know, if, if they could be a little bit more amenable to the international community, they could get some of these resources as a result. Uh, I'm just wondering if, if you had those kinds of conversations with them as well. No, no not at that level. Um, I mean, North Korean government knows that I publish and, and research and publish on the humanitarian impact of sanctions, but they don't cooperate with me in the sense that they don't show me data or show me examples of how sanctions are impacting their people. This is all uh, research that's generated from data that's openly available. Uh, so, so, yeah, we don't really discuss uh, the impact of sanctions. But I will tell you this. I have gone on record as saying that, you know, there's a certain politicization of humanitarian aid by the senders of these sanctions, for sure, because it gets dialed up and down based on the relationship between U.S. and North Korea. But at the same time, I think, the, the North Korean government can also uh, not politicize the receiving of assistance. Because I think there's a, there's a component of that as well. I think humanitarian assistance and the needs of the most vulnerable should be based on the needs only, the urgent needs, and they should never be politicized, either by the host countries or, or, or the donors themselves. Well, we're, we're coming to the end of our, our interview here. And I wanted to close with a, a final question to you. Uh, if, if you could talk to your 19 or 20-year-old self, what would you tell your, uh, your young self, Key? <laughs> oh, wow. I, you know, I, I, uh, I, it's a really good question. I mean, at, at that time, I was so, I mean, I, as, as I alluded to at the beginning of our, our podcast, you know, I was so out there, you know, could I, would I have listened to anyone? I, I don't think so. Because <laughs> I'm one of those guys, I, I think I, you have to prove it. I'm, I'm a skeptic, right? I want to, if it says it's hot, don't touch it. Well, let me just see how hot it is, you know? Um, but having said that, I think um, if I had done more soul searching early on, you know, what, what are my key drivers? What's my intrinsic motivation? You know, what drives me? Uh, what keeps me from uh, achieving my dreams? You know, just a, a real thorough self-reflection uh, 
and, and, and personal inventory, I think would have been really helpful at that age. I know, I know you're a kite surfer too. So maybe it was to take up kite surfing earlier, right? To uh, <laughs> let off some of that steam while you were young as well, I'm sure. I had no money then. <laughs> I couldn't even afford a board. <laughs> Used one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it was a great honor to speak with you, Key, and thank you very much for sharing your life and your experience and, uh, and your wisdom uh, to our audience. We really appreciate the time you take with us. It was a pleasure, Abe. Thank you for inviting me. I hope you enjoy this interview with Key Park. As I was talking with Key, I was reminded how life is full of unexpected twists and turns. I can only chuckle at Key's story how he ultimately came back to teach in the very same program at Harvard University that the faculty encouraged him to leave and eventually kicked him out. Life is full of irony and humor, isn't it? As a parent, it taught me that we have to give our young people, yes, our kids, some space to discover their calling. I imagine Key gave his parents some heartburn as he dropped out of medical school to find another career path. Then he dropped out again only to return to medical school, but eventually found his calling to serve people. This vision, this calling, ultimately got passed to the next generation, to Key's daughter, who have also chosen a similar pathway as their father in public service. Well, thank you again for listening to this episode of the Korean American Perspectives. As always, we ask that you please subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. If you like our episodes, please leave a comment and give us a rating. This helps us reach more people with these shows. Plus, you can visit our website at councilka.org for other interviews, the show notes for this episode, and more resources. And please feel free to send us an email at podcast at councilka.org with any comments or topics you may have. Thank you again and hope you tune in next time for the Korean American Perspectives. Thank you for tuning into the Korean American Perspectives podcast. Head over to councilka.org for the show notes of this episode and see exciting upcoming programs at CKA. That's councilka.org.